Welcome to the F-Rated Podcast. I'm Anu Anand, journalist and podcaster. And I'm Holly Tarquini, the founder of the F-Rating. The F is for feminist, and of course that is intersectional feminist, and the aim of the rating is to amplify films directed and or written by women, which is what we're aiming to do in this podcast. In each episode, we bring you feminist chat with top women working in various aspects of the UK film industry. Now, we didn't have the luxury of our own composer for the music in this podcast. In fact, now's probably a good time to give a shout out to the lovely person who offered up this music. It's a track called Nature Calls by Alexi. And in today's podcast, we're delving into the world of film music. Yes, and interestingly, although the F rating is for films that are directed and or written by women, female film composers are even rarer than writers and directors on other feature films. Wow. And the woman we've got today is a massive award winner. She's both phenomenally successful, prolific, a woman of color, and incredibly candid about what it's like to be in that world and and both to work with other women and work across the planet in all kinds of different productions. Yeah. And before we welcome her, we would like to ask a favor of you. If you could help us, please, by liking sharing and hopefully writing glorious reviews of this podcast it would really help and we want to amplify all of these women's stories so yes do please spread the word well today we're speaking to nanita desai nanita composed the music for the 2020 oscar nominated BAFTA and Cannes winning feature for Sama about the Syrian war. She's also the composer for the Sundance 2020 winning feature The Reason I Jump about autism and Bad Boy Billionaires, the number one Netflix series in India, four part series on the rise of four different business tycoons and their fall. So welcome, Nanita. That's just a small sample of what you've done. But thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Anu and uh, Holly. One question we always ask our guests is, tell us what your job is. What does a composer actually do, both in the big sense of the film and the day-to-day? So in terms of the big sense of the film, you know, as like a film director is telling a story through the script and the, the characters and the, and the acting and taking the viewer on an emotional, experiential journey, from start to finish, whatever that experience may be, I'm kind of doing the same thing myself. You know, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker in a very loose words as well, but I'm, I tell stories through music. So I want to take the viewer on that emotional journey. So as a composer, I work very closely with the director and the editor. I'm working mainly in post-production, through the post-production process intensely, but I do get brought on quite early on as well, even sometimes while they're writing a script or just, you know, before pre-production um, so that I can experiment and write ideas. And I have my own recording studio uh, at home. Most composers do uh, work from, from their own home studios. Um, and I have a, a room full of equipment and computers, as you can see. As yeah, well, well I was just going to say, for people listening who maybe won't see what we're seeing right now, uh, you've got a number of stringed instruments behind you, seven or eight from all over the world. 
yeah, I have a, a, a collection of um, world music instruments that I, that I pluck and bang and scrape to create noises out of. Uh, but I also have my main computer. I have a lot of keyboards and synthesizers and all sorts of other tools. They're just tools. And everything I compose is composed into the computer. I play everything. But the most joyous part of my job is when I collaborate with other musicians as well. Players who bring my music to life. So if I'm lucky enough to, at the end of a project, before I deliver all the music, depending on the budget, I will go to a big recording studio like Abbey Road or Air Studios and, and record with live players, which is which is a wonderful moment for, for a composer. And, and for directors as well, I, I, I get my directors to come to the sessions and I, I've just finished a film which I recorded at Abbey Road a couple of months ago and the director came and his jaw had dropped to the ground and it's, it's a great way of getting a director on side and for them to experience another aspect of the filmmaking process. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that with, with directors. So I, I used to make documentaries for television, which is a completely different world. But at one point I was asking a composer to compose me some music for frightening tank music I was asking for for World War II. And I found it really difficult to express what I wanted because I'm not musically literate. How do you have those conversations with directors? You've hit the nail on the head there, Holly. With that's that's the crux of what I have to do as a composer is, you know, it's it's kind of like being a psychologist having to read people's minds. I don't expect my director or, or editor to, to speak in terms of music. I always say, talk to me in terms of emotion and story and, and what you're trying to achieve story-wise uh, and emotionally because it's my job to translate the story into music. Some directors are very, very specific. They know exactly what they want in terms of style of music. So we'll create playlists I will give my director ideas, tangible ideas as pieces of music. I'll create a, mu a musical mood board and say, look, here's some tense music here for this section. Here's some epic heroic music here for this for this part of the film, possibly. And they will do the same. You know, they'll create they'll go through Spotify or Apple and and create a mood board. And uh, and and I'll and that will give me a great idea of the kind of tone and, and also I'm very influenced uh, visually if you put visuals in front of me you know I've just finished a, a Netflix series uh, for John Dower and Lightbox it's called Sophie um, a murder in West Cork and it's uh, based on a uh, it's a true crime based on a murder that happened 25 years ago in Ireland and the director John Dower said um, gave me his treatment and mood board visual mood board and that was fantastic because it gave me this dark gritty bleached out look at the way he was going to film it and 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 all those kinds of that information really seeps into me and I absorb it and think about it's you know when I see those kinds of images it, it, music comes into my mind instantly so um so that's a really wonderful sort of collaborative process and having discussions with directors I love to have discussions and to get into their minds and inhabit the kind of what are they trying to achieve with the film and, and the tone and, and the style and, and so on so that's really useful. Nanita can I ask you a question I love Holly your description what was it angry 
threatening tank music? I think <laughs> I think I was, was asking the for frightening, frightening was, tank music. Frightening tank. Okay, but, so I, and I know, Anita, you've done like you know, you've done everything from nature documentaries, as you say, to documentaries, you know, true crime, etc. What other phrases like that do you get from directors, like? You know, frightening tank music, um, proud alligator music. I don't know what what oh, else do you hear? Well, I did a commercial once. It was hilarious, and the and the director said, "Can I ma- can you make it more lemony, please? <laughs> or, or make <laughs> it more yeah, make it more yellow? You know, okay, <laughs> okay. And actually, I think when he said lemony, he meant give it a bit more zest and edge and edginess to it." You know, trying to translate a fruit, uh, you know, a, a citrus fruit into music. I thought, well, how does a lemon taste? You know, there's slight bitterness to it, or there's, you know, there's wow. an edge. It's slightly, uh, slight leaves a slight unpleasant taste in your mouth. So those are the kinds of things that I'm taking on board. So, so clearly in your work, there's this huge amounts of different skills and different influences. And what we're really interested in is your personal and professional journey and how all these things come together. So tell me about music and, and when that became a part of your life and, and in what way? Because you're the child like me of Indian immigrants. So I'm imagining the palette was quite large. Yes. So I was born and brought up in London. Uh, and I'm, a, I guess I'm a second generation British Asian. And uh, at, at primary school, I went to a Church of England school and I was actually immersed in music there because I, to, uh, I was given free music lessons. I learned the violin and the piano and I was in the school orchestra. And so I was and I was I wanted to be a singer when I was 10 years old. I wanted to be Barbara Streisand you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I sang in school choirs and so on. And at home I was brought up as a Hindu. So uh, on Sundays I went to the Hindu temple and and my mother was very much into the arts and music and she um, forced me to learn to play the sitar and uh, I was always very ex- just open and receptive to all different styles of music from jazz to classical to pop by your Sunday afternoons I used to listen to the top 40 and make my own mix playlists up and on cassette and uh, I went to the Bollywood movies yeah, every, you know, once a week I used to go to the, the local cinema and there'd be a huge congregation of hundreds of, of members of the Asian community. So, so I used to go to Bollywood movies and have to sort of sit through a three hour mu- musical uh, and, and listening to all those songs, which and the melodies are what really captivated me. And then and then I watched Doctor Who uh, and I love, you know, all the science fiction. And, and my dad used to take me to the, the pictures and um, uh, you know what used to go and watch the Bond movies so that was interesting and then at home we bought a turntable and I used to go my mother took me to the Harrods records department sale once and we used to buy all these old secondhand um, not secondhand but old cheap vinyl LPs of 50 pence for a big you know soundtrack and we used to buy all this music and it was so different, you know, John Barry film soundtracks. And, and then at school I was writing songs. I was into Joni Mitchell and Kate Bush and Barbara Streisand and, um, you know, the Beatles and, and you know, all these bands in, um, in the 80s and the 90s. So, so it was a very, very eclectic, um, very eclectic uh, background in, in uh, musically. 
And then as a teenager, I was a bit of a geek. I was a bit of a tomboy and I loved computers. I was into computer programming and playing video games and also having the pressures of feeling I needed to conform to my social and cultural pressures. I did ended up doing a degree in mathematics and it was I, something that I happened to be good at. You know, music was not something, or even film, which I loved film. Uh, and I was, I, I remember being the film critic for the student newspaper. Just, I used to get to go to all the preview screenings um, with all the film critics, and that was that was huge fun. But I never thought that be, having a career in the arts or the film or music industry was something that I could actually take on as a career. I kind of had that imposter syndrome or felt insecure in myself. And um, and so I did a degree in maths, and then from that I did a postgrad in music technology, and uh, I was really into recording and and buying equipment and uh, doing multi track recording and playing with microphones and 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 so on, and playing around my writing my own tunes and my own little bits of music. Did you absorb? Do you think two sets of of cultural values, two sets of gender values and stereotypes given that you were straddling those two cultures yes I did have that dichotomy that dilemma of you know being brought up in the west and then having these traditional cultural values as well and I guess I'm very lucky in that my parents were never truly strict or or you know I mean they they I've always taken on these Asian values of this this incredible work ethic. You know, I work incredibly hard um, and it's, you know, and and I guess uh, this generation of Asians that came to Britain in the 60s, 70s, 80s and so on, you know, they had to work hard and study um, that being academic was something that, that... So whatever I did, I felt that I was under pressure to to succeed at. And, and also being a woman, I was always a bit of a, an outsider. So at, at home, I was an outsider because I was into all this Western stuff. And at school, I was an outsider because they were very, uh, I mean, I did have sort of Asian friends, but everyone would conform. And I was under pressure to conform. And I thought, I have, I can't do that. I, I have to be true to myself and what I, and my, my creative ambitions and, and aspirations. So on the one hand, I kept my family and my peers happy by having a degree in maths, but I'll, in, inside I was thinking, I have to do what I want to do. And I gave myself a five-year plan uh, to work in the music and film industry, and I never looked back. You know, I never, I never got a real job. But being a composer, there were, I, had, I had virtually no female role models. And that was challenging for me because I, and, you know, this, uh, there's this kind of motto I've had where I don't look at myself from the um the outside in i look at myself from the inside out you know i can't see how people are looking at me i can't see you know the fact that i've got brown skin or that i'm a woman and i've never let that stop me i just think i am what i am this is what i want to do i just want to go out and do it i i think looking back i think it may well have taken me a little bit longer to get to where i am um, because I'm a woman and and i always felt that i had to work extra hard prove myself uh, you know, to prove to other people that just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I can't do the job, you know, as capable, you know, in an equally capable way as a man. I looked up to old white dead men. You know? <laughs> well, as we all do in so many different arenas. 
do you think, Nanita, that, that um, having felt like an outsider through school, that that actually helped going into an industry? Because I don't know if, if everybody listening knows, but there are probably even fewer female composers in film than there are, say, directors, even directors of photography. There are so few women composing for film. Um Yes, I mean, this industry is made up of a series of misfits, isn't it? I mean, you have to be a little bit crazy to an, an individual. Being unique and individual does, does have its advantages because now people value that. People value people from different, different perspectives, different backgrounds. I think it's, it just creates for a richer, more diverse, uh, a richer industry and a richer culture. It, it's interesting, you know, that only in the last five years I've seen a change, a real strong change, where we are seeing many more female composers now coming through. And that's really heartening. Though I must say that it's, that there is a negativity to it as well, because I, I worked uh, as a sound designer. I, I worked as a sound designer when because I, I went to film school. I got a scholarship to go to the National Film and Television School. And then from that, I became a sound designer on feature films. And then I moved into music engineering, uh, which is, a, they're all very male-dominated professions. And so I was, I was the only girl, and I felt this kind of pressure to fit in and to be one of the boys. And uh, so I feel comfortable around men, and I, 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 I always have. But conversely... I didn't really know what it was like to work with other women until recently in terms of other female directors and producers. You know, they tended to be, I tended to be employed by male directors. I'm working on a, on a few projects where they're all female uh, women teams. And it sort of dawned on me only recently, I thought, oh, this is so lovely. You know, this is just so, because I can just chill and relax and be yourself. And there's the, there is this slight pressure, you know, I have to sort of, I didn't realise what it was like to work with men until I worked with women recently. Um, that's that's really there. interesting. We, we, we need to talk about your journey, but just one question before we go back to the nuts and bolts of it. That's interesting because one of the themes that, um, you know, that we've explored with, with many of our guests is, you know, female solidarity. Is, is there solidarity or when you have women working together, actually does it sort of slightly pit women against women? Both of those things, actually. The solidarity is there, for sure. You know, it's like if I'm, you're in an edit suite or if I have a, a Zoom meeting with a film director and a film editor, um, there is this um, camaraderie. You can joke around, you can, you can joke about men, you know, but... <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it's fun and it's more relaxed, and women can talk about having their periods and not feeling, you know, uh, say, oh God, I'm having a rotten day today because of my period, you know. But I would never dream of speaking like that with a man. But the other side also happens, you know, as you pointed out, that there is this competition. Not so much now, but in the early days, if I came across the odd female director or the odd female editor. There is this kind of competition uh, that's inherent in, in just because of your gender feeling that's uh, not aimed at me personally, but I sense it from 
female directors having to assert themselves in that in within the team environment and working with other men male executive producers and so on and that's i i pick up those vibes and that tension is there and also with with other female composers sadly i sense you know we fall into two camps there's the so- solidarity but then there's also that they feel threatened by other female composers as well and yet they don't feel threatened by other male composers which is so so funny i think it's also um because there have historically been so few women composers that there is probably the fear of oh my god there can only be five and if if there are two of us then i've got to kind of overthrow you so i think often that competition i don't believe that I could be wrong, that it's innate. I think it is because of the situation. Like lots of female directors that say that they've tried to get things commissioned and the BBC have said, oh no, you know, we've got a woman's series at the moment as though you can only have one a year or we've got a female comedian. We can only, you know, we can only have the one. Yes, you're so right. Other female directors have said that to me. So, well, I was told that... I can only, you know, well, we've already got that, a project like that or we've already got a female director within the company. Uh, we don't want any more. We don't need any more. We, you know, we're, we're up to our eyeballs. And, and, but um, I'm having sort of exec producers coming up to me saying, oh, do you know any female editors? Do you know any more really cool happening female directors? Uh, and I've had two or three companies, uh, filmmakers that I'm working with, asking me those questions. So just going back to your journey, Nanita, what was the big break? You, you studied maths, you were a techie, you loved music, but what got you into composing and music and film? Well, because I was techie and I was really into sound, I got a scholarship to go to the National Film and Television School and I studied sound design um, and and I became a sound designer on feature films. So I worked with Bernardo Bertolucci and Werner Herzog. I worked in Germany for a year. And, and so I had a lot of experience working as part of big teams. Uh, and, and it gave me a great foundation in learning how to communicate with people, how to work in teams, what people do in post-production. You know, I learned about post-production and the audio side of things. So that was fantastic. But it wasn't quite creative enough for me. So I ended up giving it all up. Peter Gabriel had come to my university a couple of years ago, previously, and I got introduced to him at university and he said, oh, this is really interesting work you're doing, Nanita, you know, this project and that project. Look me up when you finish your degree. Of course, I didn't because I went into the film industry, as a, you know, in sound. And then I, um, I was just becoming frustrated, creatively frustrated. And I thought, I need to get into music. This is my real, my real passion. So I remembered what Peter had said. And I wrote him a handwritten letter uh, to Real World in, uh, in Box, just outside Bath, which is where he's based with his wonderful recording studio complex. And um, I got a reply back, a phone call. It said, we got your letter, Nanita. Would you like to come down and visit us? And and I'd always been a huge fan of Peter and his music and world music and all of that, you know, since growing up. So uh, off I trottled to uh, to Real World Studios and they offered me a job on the spot uh, to be Peter Gabriel's assistant music engineer. So that was a fantastic, um, gave me a really great grounding in working with music engineers, producers, working with artists and musicians. And um, it was a wonderful experience. And then I, um, I, I was 
frustrated with working on other people's music. I wanted to work on my own music. And I met this music supervisor at Real World and he offered me a job and said, look, Nanita, I know you want to compose. Uh, would you like to write the music for a travel adventure show that I'm uh, supervising? Uh, it's called The Lonely Planet Travel Show, which is based on the Lonely Planet guidebooks. And it was for Channel 4. And so I, I took it on. I, I was thrown in at the deep end. You know, it was baptism by fire. And... Uh, I taught myself how to write music, staying up all day and all night, how to write a picture, how to hit points on the screen when something happens, you know, the music has to respond. And um, and so I got through that and I must have done something right because I got offered another job for the same company. And it just grew from that. And, you know, 20 years later, um, sort of having written lots and lots of music for lots and lots of different projects um you know so so holly and i really want to talk about those projects let's talk about first of all for sama and for those who haven't seen it this is a stunning harrowing documentary film it was shot by the syrian journalist and filmmaker wad al-khatib uh through five years of the uprising in aleppo um where she was living through the film, she she falls in love, she gets married, she gives birth to a little girl called Sama. And this is all while barrel bombs and mortars and shells are destroying everything around them. Um, it's also mostly set in the hospital that her husband, who is a doctor, has set up to treat the wounded. I mean, absolutely, absolutely the most harrowing thing I've ever seen, but also so full of humanity. I mean, death, joy, laughter hope, danger, despair. Um, so talk a little bit about uh, For Sama. I mean, the real world sound in that film plays a massive role. You know, the sound of birds in the sky occasionally with fighter planes or the sound of bombs dropping, the sound of a baby in the midst of this horror. So how did the music fit into that? Well, it was a long journey. Uh, I think I was involved in the film for about 18 months. We were editing for about 18 months, which is exceptionally long. That was never the intention. It was meant to be a one-hour documentary for Channel 4, and it just grew and grew and grew. And I got brought on very much at the beginning of the edit. Um, I had a conversations with Ed Watts, the co-director, and um, the brief originally was to write a very sort of rich Hollywood drama, thriller kind of uh, war movie kind of score, orchestral with contemporary elements, a bit like Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty kind of feel. You know, this is a, a Syrian uprising, the revolution, you know, the Syrian war and so on. And so I wrote about 80, 80 themes um, over the first 12 weeks of the edit. And and they were working with it um, and it was fine. And then there was a pause in the edit after the first three months. And things were not quite gelling. And the film uh, hadn't quite found its own voice and its own narrative. And because it is an archive-based film, you know, with 500 hours worth of home footage, you know, it had to find its voice. You can make 500 films out of that 500 hours. You know, there's a huge task at hand to craft a narrative out of the material. And so the decision was made to 
turned this into a film that was much more intimate. What is this film actually about? At heart, it's about the relationship between a mother and a daughter against this epic backdrop. And when that decision was made and that narrative spine was uh, you know, decided upon, the music that I had written no longer worked because it was too big and too rich and too epic. So we started pairing things right back and make it much more minimalist. And one decision I made was to bring in this... Uh, for me, authenticity is incredibly important when scoring, you know, for me to find the true heart of a film through the music. And so I brought in this musician who's a Syrian refugee who's also a violinist, and he, he was living in Italy at the time. And I heard his playing on the, he plays the violin. And I didn't want this clean, classical, pure violin. I wanted to, the sound that he made on his instrument was very, had a rough, raw edge to it, had a visceral quality to it. It was almost echoed and mirrored the crumbling city of Aleppo around you that you see in the film. His playing was like the beating heart of Aleppo. The two most powerful scenes in the film are where this um, you have this baby being born via caesarean birth and um, these two boys are bringing in their third brother who is dead into the hospital. And we had music over those scenes originally and, we th and then we looked at them and we thought, why do we have music here? You know, we took away the music and the scenes became much more powerful without music. You're using silence to create greater impact. Even thinking about For Summer, I start crying. And your music is such a massive part of it. It felt so unarrogant. It's very interesting you use the word arrogant because one, as a composer, you want to... It's funny, you want to show off what you can do. Okay, well, look, hey, I can write a big piece of music here. I can write a huge, huge score. And it's, look what I can do, you know. And the hardest thing is actually to hold back. And, and another film that you've done that's very, very different in terms of the way that sound is used is The Reason I Jump. Um, this is based on a best-selling book by Naoki Higashida, um, who wrote it at the age of 13. He's non-speaking and autistic. And it's about the experiences, his experiences and the experiences of others like him around the world. And the idea is to create for those of us who are non-neurodiverse, this overwhelming, joyful, sensory experience of what it's like to be them. There's music and there's sound. You're using much more of it in this film than, than you do in For Summer. With this film, we were, I did a lot of research. I, I love doing research and trying to find the heart of a film. One obvious thing is that the contributors in the film are non-verbal, they're non-speaking. So I wanted to give them a musical voice. So I did things like I took key phrases from the English translation, translated them back into the Japanese original, and then 
broke these key phrases and words into their vowels and consonants and syllables, and then I sang them in the score. You hear bits of vocals, actually, and, and singing in the score itself. And so that's me singing these kind of words in a broken, fragmented way. You know, neurotypical people like you or I will walk into a room, a room full of people, and see the whole, the whole, and then focus in on details, whereas... Uh, with some autistic people, it's the opposite for them. So it was like taking little fragments of sounds, little elements, and then piecing them together slowly like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together. Another thing, in terms of authenticity, I brought in a cellist who's um, Elizabeth Wicklander. She's a cellist with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and she's autistic herself. And she's a cultural ambassador for the National Autistic Society in the UK. So her contribution, where she plays the cello on the film, was incredibly moving and, and powerful and very personal. So, you know, authenticity and being true to the story and integrity is so, so important for me. I'm just attracted to great storytelling, whatever it may be. And the one positive that's come out of the pandemic is that... Um, we're all communicating via Zoom and, and on the internet. And it's and for me, in my profession, it's made the world a much smaller place where I can work on stories from all over the world. And I'm working on projects that are more US-based now in New York and LA. And, uh, for example, the Marvel series, would I doubt that would ever have happened had we not had the pandemic because the teams went, oh, we can employ composers from anywhere from the UK we all work remotely now you know we're all watching Netflix we're all watching Amazon and Disney and Apple and Facebook and YouTube are all got getting in on creating content so the playing field has been leveled you've worked in everything from games to series to ads to Meghan and Harry's theme tune to films, documentaries, drama, superheroes. What advice would you give to your younger self if you were looking back down the years? What would you like to say? Oh, gosh, there's so much. Uh, learn to read, learn to read and write music. Because <laughs> I I can't actually, technically, I can't, um, I don't have a formal education in music, which, uh, which surprises many people. And uh, I, I'm a testament to the fact that you can have a career as a composer and not read and write music. But, uh, but, uh, but on a less technical level, I just have, having that faith, listening to your inner voice and, and having faith in yourself and going for your dreams, working incredibly hard and perseverance and tenacity. I think that's not a lesson. I mean, I always had that anyway. I, I never gave up, um, I, but I think it's ju it is true. Just never giving up. If you really want something, um, go for it. Be the kind of person that people want to have around, you know, and your passion has to, to ooze sort of enthusiasm and passion and and it will show and people will respond and pick up on that um so uh yeah i suffered from imposter syndrome it took me a, a while to have that self-confidence and and to listen to my inner voice and uh, i think that's really important well your passion and enthusiasm has certainly come through today so nanita decide thank you so much for making this time uh, to talk to us 
Thank you, Nanita. Thank you so much, Anu and Holly. Thank you very much. I love her. <laughs> She's just a masterclass in directing your talents in, in, in a way that the limits of other people of the industry don't curtail what you have to offer. So I just thought that was, I just thought that was really inspiring. Yeah, amazing. And I completely empathize with the looking up to dead white men. I spent my whole childhood looking up to dead white men and live yeah. white men, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny, isn't it, listening back? Because, of course, when we recorded this with Nenita, Miss Marvel was, you know, it was still a big secret. And, of course, my gosh, it's been phenomenal. Total favorite in this household. Uh, yeah. So that was a real, real treat. Next week, we've got a huge treat for you, a director who has won 17 major awards. So if you're a fan of The Crown or Call the Midwife, you will definitely want to tune in because Philippa Lothorpe will be speaking to us. Thank you so much for listening. Join us again next week and please share, subscribe, rate this episode and others if you are enjoying it. Thanks a lot.